Denial is not a plan. Our markets, the energy markets, the supply chain has a degree of volatility to it that many of us haven't experienced in a long while. And you have to have a primary plan, a secondary, maybe even a tertiary plan to deal with the consequences. It's really looking ahead, trying to anticipate what's over the horizon, what's around the corner that sets companies that really succeed from companies that barely survive or companies that fail. We learn when we listen. Welcome to Green Mike, an Edison Energy and Altenex Energy podcast, where we invite you into today's most compelling conversations happening in clean energy and sustainability. Hi, I'm Bill Kenworthy. Thanks for joining today's episode of Green Mike with Edison Energy. I'm delighted to welcome Ken Irvin. Ken is the co-leader of Sidley Austin's Global Energy Practice. Uh, if you don't know Sidley, they are among the world's top firms when it comes to helping clients with regulatory enforcement, compliance, and transactional matters. Ken, thank you for joining today. Thank you, Bill, for having me in. It's a pleasure to be here with you. I think about some of our, our clients that multinationals, institutions who maybe in 2019 thought they had an easy glide path to renewable energy, to resilience without any price shocks, and they all had it sort of lined up. And here we are, 2022, hopefully in the end of a pandemic. We have a conflagration in Eastern Europe. We have rising commodity costs. We have inflation as a constant topic of news headlines. I know you help clients synthesize all these realities. I'm looking at a ticker right in front of me of commodity prices, whether it's crude, natural gas, uh, electricity, everything is green and green is bad. It's bad in the sense that it's up. Are you helping clients consume the reality of this, how long it's going to be around? I'm not sure if green is bad all the time and for all the clients, but it's definitely a rising price environment and that puts pressure on folks who are on the demand side of the marketplace. We are definitely seeing a lot more volatility in oil and gas. And I know the gas market is running up, which means the electricity market will run up as well. The situation in Europe with Russia cutting off gas supplies is putting a lot of pressure on the United States to export. Last week, I heard the price of gas trades in Europe for about $30 an MMBTU. That compares to a couple of years ago, it used to be around two and maybe even negative sometimes in, in Western Texas. But today, six, seven, eight bucks at times. So that kind of disparity between the price here and the price in London, the price in the EU, definitely going to put upward pressure on prices in the United States, definitely call forth a lot of supplies, definitely have a lot of dislocation. It's been very interesting to help clients manage through that. At the same time, geopolitical issues, the situation with China and the impact on foreign trade with China, supply chain, that too is impacting the supply and demand market. Uh, especially on renewables and PV solar. While things may have seemed pretty interesting in 2019, they are as choppy as ever in 2020 and, and looking forward. What's the way that you're helping clients? Are we talking about how they fast forward LNG terminals? Is it about reforming supply agreements that were destined for some offtake, but now they want to get them exported? Like, What are the phone calls you're getting inbound? It's kind of all of the above. Certainly streamlining regulatory processes, eliminating regulatory uncertainty is a key issue. I would say 
the markets right now have a skittishness to them, a nervousness about what shoe is going to drop next. So the more we can eliminate regulatory uncertainty, the better. That is speeding up the process, helping get clarity as to an answer, uh, helping get to an answer as quickly as possible. So projects can be approved and installed and built up and gone into commercial service. There's definitely contractual issues, force majeure, outsized pricing dislocations. Those types of disputes also roil the market. Force majeure is a big issue in the energy markets. And you know this is our third year of everybody relearning what the term force majeure means. In 2020, we learned what it meant with regard to pandemic and People might have had epidemic in their claws, but not pandemic. Was that an issue? And then in 21, we had winter storm Uri. We've had other weather events or wildfire events as well. Now in 22, we have the conflict that's Russia-Ukraine. And is that war? Is that insurrection? Is that conflict? What is that? And when it comes to interpreting a force majeure clause, sometimes those words, what is particularly chosen, can make a material difference as to whether you get the benefit of claiming FM or not. We have a client for whom, domestic client for whom we are bringing in various electrical equipment, and we are definitely re-examining the language in force majeure, and it says act of war. And I, I was wondering the same thing, Ken. Is that, is that specific enough or wide enough to address what is happening? I use the word conflagration that's happening in Europe. I don't know who, like, who even deems something a war? Would it have to be our Congress doing it? Would it have to be NATO? How, what are the different dimensions of that? I think you've hit on some key issues there and issues that we all hope we never have to address, right? <laughs> because, you know, as the lawyer helping a client, the answer is probably it depends, right? As opposed to, oh, yeah, the answer is this crystal clear, black and white kind of response. I don't know if everybody agrees the Russia-Ukraine is a war, as that term is used in many FM clauses. Maybe it's an insurrection. Maybe it's armed conflict. There's a Latin term that lawyers are taught, jus gem generis, which says you interpret the meaning of the things in the list by what's in a list. And they all have to be similar, or they all have to be of a like kind kind of thing. This comes to play in force majeure clauses. And you know, another factor for interpreting that is the purpose of the contract, right? If you're buying supplies from Ukraine, then probably what's happening there really ought to be viewed as force majeure. But if you're transacting in stuff that doesn't directly come from Ukraine or directly come from Russia or go into those markets and just feels an ancillary effect from that, that could be more complicated. You know, in my experience, People want to say force majeure too quickly, too knee-jerk, just like, oh, it's a force majeure, we don't have to perform. And I don't think that's exactly what is the proper legal interpretation. Performance has to be prevented. And often you find that performance could occur. It's just it costs more than the buyer or the seller really wants to pay. In the gas market, we operate on efficient breach, right? So like, you, sure, you don't have to deliver to me, but you have to pay me for non-delivery and you have to pay me my cover costs. So that's all well and good, as long as everybody honors their obligation to pay. When that starts creeping into the scenario, and that's another factor here, right? Are we having inflation? Are we gonna have rising interest rates? Are we gonna have a recession? 
I happen to notice that year to date, the Dow is off 10%. The S&P and the NASDAQ are off more. This is a tough year right now. And it's not clear what the second half of this year or what the first part of 23 looks like. So it is a tough time to be thinking about what are going to be my economics three months, six months, 12 months from now, and then focusing on those parts of the contract that sometimes get referred to as boilerplate, but which can have a material impact when you're dealing with a surprise in the economics. What I can tell clients, doing nothing is bad. You can sit back and hope it all settles, but when you have a view, whether that's to upgrade infrastructure, whether that's to hedge a price, you should choose a view that is in line with the fundamentals of your business. We work with a healthcare system They want resilience for their community. So for them, it's expanding a central plant, right? Yes, the prices have gone up for chiller equipment, for labor, but they're proceeding because they understand it's a fundamental and for what they can see in front of them, they must move forward, right? And I imagine for you, when we met Ken ahead of this podcast, you talked, I said, how do you get business, Ken? And you said, Well, it comes in, but I have long-term relationships. So I imagine your clients are calling you. I think you said you had a call earlier today just before we joined. They're probably calling to get your view of how the market's moving relative to their fundamentals. Do you ever experience that? What you said is exactly right. Denial is not a plan, right? So you can't just pretend like it's not going to happen. I like that abbreviation IRL in real life because, you know, we're sort of opening up and meeting in real life. But Our markets, the energy markets, the supply chain has a degree of volatility to it that many of us haven't experienced in a long while. And so you have to be proactive about it. You have to figure out about it. And you have to have a primary plan, a secondary, maybe even a tertiary plan to deal with the consequences. It's really looking ahead, trying to anticipate what's over the horizon, what's around the corner that sets companies that really succeed from companies that barely survive or companies that fail, knowing where those risks are, knowing what you plan to do when those risks pop up, that's a function. That's a factor you got to do, and that's going to separate you from success or failure. Absolutely. Staying in line with externalities that corporations or institutions don't think about every day, recently in the solar industry, in the photovoltaic, which sometimes you might hear is referred to as PV, There was an action or an investigation or proceeding by the Department of Commerce where, maybe you could explain it better than me, Ken, but where there was basically some, I think it's anti-circumvention is the proceeding where for our clients who deal with solar developers and want their offtake, the market is ostensibly ground to a halt while this action takes place. What are you seeing around this right now? You're absolutely right. The PV solar market has been impacted by federal government action, restricting the importation of panels from certain countries. There's a lot of concern with regard to China on forced labor, about anti-competitive actions. And then while there was a focus on China, supply of PV panels shifted to other Southeast Asian countries. And the question now being investigated, among others, is whether that's sufficiently away from China and Chinese ownership as to be legitimate or whether it's a circumvention, an illegitimate circumvention. As a consequence of this, this is slowed down or choked off the supply of new panels and, and really hamstrung the development of new PV solar. 
it's a really strange kind of conundrum for the timing of it because the Russia-Ukraine situation with Russia choking off supplies has taught us is the less you need oil and gas, the less power dictators in oil states will have. So it'd be great if we could rely more and more on wind and solar and other renewables. But then we have this issue with importation. Somebody put it to me uh, last week, deglobalization. When I went to law school and graduated in 92, you know, all my colleagues wanted to be international law attorneys. I never really understood that, except I think what it meant was trade. We were going to have the global agreement on tariffs and trade, and we we're going to have this global marketplace. Well, as it's turned out here in 2021, 2022, so on, that may not be such a great idea. Maybe we do need to reshore development of PV panels, development of all the semi-precious or rare earth minerals that go into making renewable energy. Another aspect, we talk about oil and gas for Russia, but there are other exports that Russia has. There's agricultural wheat, that's Russia and Ukraine. Ukraine is sunflower oil, which is a big <laughs> another commodity, but there are also nickel and other metals that are necessary for the production of all of this renewable generation and distributed generation and all those equipment that are going to wean us off of oil and gas. So that's what's making things so complicated is we may be just shifting demand from something that we perceive as bad as leading to greenhouse gas and climate change, such as crude oil and natural gas. But we're then focusing on other things that may be less abundant, harder to get, and definitely harder to find here in the United States. So it's a complicated market. And I would say the renewable market, the incremental growth in renewable generation is going to slow down this year because of this. Hopefully it's a temporary blip, but we're definitely seeing headwinds there. Yeah, someone who, as I and others help clients think about their renewables, because often at Edison Energy, I think the experience we get invited in to advise clients when they make decarbonization commitments. Yes, they want to save money and yes, they want resilience, but more and more it's about decarbonization commitments. This is challenging that, or at least the timing of that. Maybe not the commitment, but the timing of it. This is a naive question. In a way, the Department of Commerce action seems bad. And I know I don't think you deal in terms as binary, but we're slowing down an industry that most people think is good. I guess if there is anti-competitive situations or dynamics occurring, then we need to onshore that, which is building up a capability that is a decade away from meeting previous levels that we experience today. Does the Department of Commerce, in their judgment, think about the overall industry, or is it very specific towards the case? How do they adjudicate that? I think you've hit on a key feature in what's going to be debated in this situation is like how far of a purview, how wide of a purview should be considered when analyzing the public interest. We're seeing that across the entire energy spectrum about how much beyond sort of the primary function of the agency can be considered. That's a tension we have right now in our federal government. And the Supreme Court has been at the center of that. The different flavors of um, political philosophy we have are at the center of that. I think there's definitely what the Biden administration aspires for. There's the two degrees centigrade commitments and things like that. 
But I don't know if those are so compelling as to override the other concerns about anti-dumping and forced labor. I certainly don't have a simple solution. The complexity here of competing issues is very challenging and there is no such thing as a free lunch. It's about the only constant I can find through all of this. Every decision has a consequence. Oh, you try and be as thoughtful as you can, but you know that you're not getting anything for free. So turning this way means you might not be able to go that way. And you have to do your best to balance all that and be reasonable about it. And I think they're trying. I think they will do the best they can. I, I hope there's not any kind of bias or animus in the way the government approaches this. But there's a lot of concern about uh, here in Washington about agencies going beyond their purview. We see that with the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and what it's allowed to consider. We see that with EPA and whether it can regulate carbon. We saw that with the CDC and its regulations, its orders vis-a-vis the pandemic. We've had divided government, maybe dysfunctional government in the legislative branch for so long that spurred the executive branch to exercise its authority. It's understandable that something's got to be done, so they did it. Maybe they went too far. Sometimes it's better to ask forgiveness than to ask permission, right? So you you give them credit for trying, but in our system of government, especially at the federal level, that's not really a recognized principle, right? The federal government is of a limited authority and has to keep within the bounds of its limits. So one of the agencies you didn't mention, but that we also know has a, a matter that it's considering is the SEC, as it asks public companies to think about climate disclosure. Also complex and also sort of in the beginning stages of it. For listeners, scope one emissions are kind of, it's described as like what a business creates on its own in its sort of local manufacturing. And then scope two is like the inputs from power and gas and what those emissions are caused by. So think the generation it uses for its demand. And then scope three, which is all the suppliers to the manufacturer, and then any use of its product downstream. Scope three is a really big bucket. Scope three is contemplated in the SEC's climate disclosure purview. But I think you were saying there's a lot of contemplation that has to happen before this becomes put into effect. I'm an energy lawyer, not a securities lawyer, but what I do know about securities laws, the disclosures required are what a reasonable investor would want to know. So to some degree, I understand the issuer should have to disclose sort of climate impacts because those will have costs, those will affect the business, right? The ESG movement is real. The interest in consumers in going green, going organic is real. And so disclosure about that commitment to net zero and its impact on the ability to sell goods or services, that makes sense to me. When you start taking it out to those secondary, tertiary, and so on bands of consequences, the ability to predict that with certainty to give disclosure seems attenuated at best. And I'm not sure how that squares with the reasonable investor inquiry. Ultimately, of course, who doesn't want carbon-free electricity? Who doesn't want to have Uh, an environment free from pollution. We all want that, of course, but it comes back to what I said before. There's no free lunch. So trying to impose this type of regime through a securities regulation may not be the best fit. It may not be the most efficacious, and it could have negative repercussions that ultimately disserve the goal of trying to address climate change. 
Ken, you said the the literature produced by the SEC inviting comment is no fewer than how many pages? <laughs> I think I joked it was like a million pages, right? Like it's a it's got a density to it, right? Yeah. To your point, though, it's complex. There's a lot of content in there. There's a lot of trade-offs. They think about markets, the effect on corporations wanting to go public, the assumptions they make in their disclosures. I know it's all for the good of investors, but some of the things I read were, tell me about the risks that climate change could have on your your facility. It's fine if you're in the Houston shipping channel, you can reasonably estimate maybe you should hurricane impacts. As you think about, like you said, second and third order, it starts to become more art than science. And I worry too that it'll be an un- undue burden and a little bit of fiction for some of the requirements that I've read that are possibly in there. You're definitely making extrapolations that will have decreasing amounts of factual basis to them and will just be assumptions. So if you're a coastal business, you have to anticipate sea level rise. If you're um, a winter business, it depends on snowfall. I think you have to anticipate changing weather conditions and the absence of snow. Those things make sense to me. If in different parts of the country and the effects of hurricanes or dry winters have secondary or tertiary effects on me, it's just harder to know what those are and to say what they are. And I'm not sure that that helps the reasonable investor. We're having this debate at FERC with regard to natural gas pipeline policy. And what should FERC be considering when it's approving the siting of a natural gas facility? And should it consider carbon impacts from upstream, carbon impacts from downstream? At the same time, just rejected a proposal on responsibly sourced certification for natural gas. So I admire everyone's attention to this issue, and I think it's for the greater good, but we have to be thoughtful about it and not so precipitous, not so knee-jerk that we screw things up or make it worse. There's a lot of ambition here, and I'm not sure that we have the actual science and tools to make it all happen at the timetable we're thinking about. If you're thinking about a commitment by 2050, well, that's 27 years from now. That's not very... The grand scheme of the energy markets or the commodity markets, that's not a long time away. And so we need to take care about how extreme or how jarring the changes we want to impose are. At arm's length, notions around 2050 seem achievable. But if we come back to something we discussed about, like bringing back solar manufacturing to the states or whatever technology, you know, whether it's mining or other sort of specialized trades, those things do take, are measured in, in decades, right, Ken? And so as we contemplate all these policies, externalities, some that reasonably are in our control, you know, things that you help clients work through in proceedings, things that aren't, wars, there's a lot before corporations, clients of ours, institutions, as they think through different externalities of it. One last one I'd like to pick your brain on. I think something that's enacted, right, in the Infrastructure Investment Act and Jobs Act is there's there's a carve out for EV infrastructure, electric vehicle infrastructure. I think it, it works from the federal level down to the states. Are there clients that you're helping with that? Do you start to see movement? And I mean, do you think this will drive a bit of a, a shift to EV transition? Absolutely. The demand for electric vehicles is real, both for consumers like you and me where we'll choose an EV as a personal car, 
If you've ever driven an electric car, they're astounding. The acceleration, the ability to do things, the ability to self-park, for example, the ability to avoid collision is amazing. But where a whole other area where we're seeing electric vehicle uh, really take off is in um, trucks, whether it's school buses or long-haul trucks or short-haul trucks. The electrification of those vehicle fleets is out there and available for us. Undoubtedly, you've seen commercials for electric lawnmowers, right? Where it's like the Roomba for your lawn. Well, you can have a Roomba that is your tractor in your cornfield or your wheat field or whatever. So electrification of all those vehicles, we're definitely helping with. And it's an exciting time for that. I think the Infrastructure and Jobs Act is spurring development of that. But I also think the market loves the idea of investing in this. That's why the automobile manufacturers were moving out on it. It's interesting that Senator Manchin says, why do we have to give tax credits to electric vehicle buyers? They're clamoring at the door to buy them. We don't need to incent that anymore. As much as I might like that tax credit, I think he's on to something. But electrification of that kind of vehicular traffic makes tremendous sense. It's more efficient. There's less maintenance. The initial purchase costs, investment costs are higher. But over the long haul, the operating costs will be lower. And that'll allow an increase in safety and reliability that I don't know everyone is fully appreciating yet. Autonomous long-haul tractor-trailers that can talk to each other and basically run down the road like a school of fish or a flock of birds and, and work all connected like that, that's much safer and would likely avoid these giant pileups like we see in, in bad times. Because they'll talk to each other and they'll all kind of slow down together, that kind of thing. I love driving, so I'm never going to give up the art of driving. I want to shift gears and push the pedals and turn the wheel. But some of these cars, these electric cars, can pull into a parking slot, can parallel park, much better than Ken Irving can, probably. I'm sorry to say. <laughs> I heard you can parallel park in no fewer than two. So you have your next EV that does it in one. I get it. 50% more efficient. I'm afraid to take my driver's test again. I'd like to believe I'd pass, but I don't want to ever have to take that test again. It's an exciting time for EVs. There's a lot to be done. There's a lot of the distribution system that needs to be enhanced. You know, you need to have a 220 line in your garage to charge your car. To deal with transportation that's more than just return to base, or even for trucking, you're going to need DC fast chargers. So those are going to consume about half to a full megawatt of power an hour as they charge up vehicles in 10-minute increments, right? So um, definitely a lot of load. Overall, with electrification and all the efforts toward the 2050 goals and the two degrees Celsius, I heard analysts say that we need to double the total amount of electric generation in the United States. We have a lot of electric generation already in the United States. To think of us doubling that in under 30 years is a tall ask. I think it would be cool to see it happen. I think there's a lot of money supporting that, but that's a tall ask. It comes back to to your point, right? That 2050 is not that far away when we think about major infrastructure requirements to drive renewables, to drive sustainability, to drive resilience, because resilience, resilience matters so much to our clients and institutions. Ken, it is a delight to speak with you. You are so balanced in the way you view all these interconnected issues. I like your your tips here. We might have a coffee table book just on your tips. Denial is not a plan. 
IRL, to be reminded, is in real life. The old always true, no free lunch. The art of driving. I'm full of cliches, what you're saying, right? <laughs> the way you deliver them is, is very artful and in context. I I think your, your firm, Sidley, I'm sure your team, very busy right now. I'm sure a great partner to your clients as they navigate these issues and try to position not only like a favorable outcomes now, but also in the future. Thank you for joining us today, Ken. I can't wait to speak again in the future. Thanks, Bill. It's been my pleasure. Appreciate the time. Thanks so Talk much. To you again. Find Green Mike on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts.